Drawing room over here. You made it. Oh, come on through. Do you fancy drink? What's your tipple? What is the legacy of the largest empire of modern times? Is it those statues of old white men who seem to litter public places across the Commonwealth? Or is it something more subtle, like the cup of tea you're drinking, or even that fern you diligently nurture? You see, they're all born out of the complex tides of history, which can be overlooked if you subscribe to the popularly dominant negative view of the British Empire. Satnam Sangira is uh, the author of Empire World and he discusses these sorts of nuances in British colonial history. Satnam, welcome to you. Uh, thanks for having me on. Given your Indian heritage and the West's reckoning with its colonial past, some might expect that this book would take a negative view of colonialism. And, and I don't ask this flippantly or, or naively uh, in the face of history, but you point out the positive things to come out of empire. What are those? I guess, actually, I don't particularly seek to emphasise the positive or the negative. What I try to argue is that both were true. So, for example, British Empire was heavily into slavery, but also it was heavily into anti-slavery and created abolition. Um, it destroyed the environment in places like Australia and New Zealand, destroyed 60% of New Zealand's forests, but also it led to the birth of environmentalism. It spread the free press, but also spread censorship. So... Not only are the legacies complex, I realised whilst writing Empire World that actually they're more or less contradictory. When we grow up in the Antipodes, as I did, the front of every classroom when I was at school was a resplendent uh, portrait of Queen Elizabeth II. We start to think about our colonial experience in this sort of vacuum that perhaps that we are the jewel somehow in the, the empire or, or in the Commonwealth. And then I've travelled to, you know, Canada, other Commonwealth countries, the, the West Indies, and you start to see other variations of empire and the British Empire. You really looked internally and considered how the empire shaped Britain itself. Then you went to Barbados and you're inspired to write this book. So there is this dualism again between how the world shaped Britain and how Britain shaped the world. Tell me about your trip to Barbados. Yeah, Barbados is a you know, nation largely created by British Empire. We obviously introduced industrially produced sugar there using the enslaved. But there's all sorts of legacies there, like the high rates of diabetes. Guess what? We, the place there where we produce sugar and brought loads of Africans has a high rate of diabetes. That's a legacy. It has you know problems with poor health care and education. Guess what? We didn't give them much money to develop health care or education. We didn't allow the enslaved to have proper health care and education. Got problems with absent fathers. And guess what? We had broken families in Barbados because we didn't allow enslaved families to have a family life. So there's all sorts of legacies. It's a it's a very modern country, but it's a country that you can very much feel has been shaped by empire. And it extends to Britain because, you know, one of the richest members of parliament in, in London is Richard Drax, whose family wealth comes entirely, almost entirely, from um, Barbados and sugar production. And these legacies aren't something abstract or something in the deep, distant history. These are live issues that affect politics in the Caribbean today. 
Let's talk about plants because this is a pretty good example of these dichotomies that, of which you speak. You point out that plants hold a pretty important place in imperialism uh, from tea to opium, ferns, even magnolias. How did reading about the environment in Barbados make you appreciate the imperialist nature of Kew Gardens, those wonderful gardens in London? I guess, I mean, I never really thought of plants as being an arm of colonialism because I see them I see them as interior design, basically. But, you know, the sugar in Barbados was part of, was a colonial initiative. It was introduced there in a contrived way. But there's all sorts of plants that the empire got involved in. Cinchona is a plant that produces quinine. And the quinine enabled us to colonize large parts of Africa. Rubber was a plant that we produced in, in deep Asia. And the profits from that led to war in Malaya. Tea, you know, we, with tea, we changed the diet, not only of the British, but Indians. I mean, Indians didn't really drink tea until the British imposed it upon them. It led to war with China because of the opium wars. It led to the loss of the American colonies because of the Boston Tea Party. It led to labor exportation across Asia in ways that continues today. But then you've got stuff like palm oil, which continues to be exploited. You've got garden plants. You've got ferns, which you mentioned at the start of this um, segment. And ferns were hugely popular in the Victorian age. Every Victorian household in England wanted ferns, but they came from empire and the desire for these ferns caused huge environmental damage across the places where they came from. But at the same time, the environmental damage then inspired anxiety amongst the imperialists about wanting to save the environment. And this led to the birth of environmentalism. So you've got massive environmental destruction, but also the birth of modern environmentalism. So that's a profound contradiction. If you've just joined me on RN Drive, Satnam Sanghera is my guest. We're discussing his book, Empire World. You know, in, in recent years, certainly in this country, there's been a growing consciousness about the way we teach uh, history and particularly to primary and secondary age students in this country. Uh, I have to say that in my time at school, we had no Indigenous history. It was all uh, European and colonial history. Do you take a view on this broadly and d does it and should it differ between uh, how it's taught in uh, in England versus how it's taught maybe in Barbados or, or here in Australia? Yeah, my sense is that the formula, formerly, former colonies teach empire quite well, whereas in Britain, the, the teaching is distinctly patchy. It's on the national curriculum, but it's not a big part of the national curriculum when it comes to history. We still tend to focus on World War One, and World War Two, and the Tudors. And I think this is a mistake because, you know, we colonized a quarter of the planet. It was the biggest thing Britain ever did. It was probably one of the biggest things in world history. And also, it's the prism through which a lot of the world sees Britain. And yet, we don't really understand it. And this cr creates a, a slight surreal gap between the way we see the world and the way the world sees us. And at a time of Brexit, where we're, we're trying to reestablish our relationships with the world, it would make sense for us to have a better sense of how the world sees us. And I think we should teach it better, frankly. And I do, I think I have not been to Australia. But the sense I get is that it is being taught increasingly well over there. And we should try to match the progress.
maybe those dualities or dichotomies that you mentioned is the way forward. You know, this idea that you can hold two ideas in your head at the same time. I think we're becoming mature enough as a nation to be able to do that. What about the United States? Because you could argue that much of um, the attitudes that prevail in the United States about the United Kingdom, uh, you know, this idea influenced by, uh, you know, the US being developed in spite of or as a reaction, you know, to uh, colonisation, to reject the crown, so to speak. But you've written a little bit about the, I suppose... Is it the exact opposite of the British Empire, right? Yeah, exactly. And That's the, what I, I mean, this, yeah. It, this explains the phenomenon of the evil Brit, how every every evil character in a Hollywood movie is more often than not played by a British person, even when they're German Nazis. And <laughs> I think this is false because actually America itself is... A British imperial legacy, the 13 colonies. And also, once they rejected the British Empire, you know, America pretty much spread in the same way and grew in the same way that Australia and Canada spread, like as settler colonialists with, you know, reservations, similar ideas, crude ideas about race. It was it was very much an imperial um, spread, that country. And for me, the the thing that epitomizes it is, is Roger Kipling's poem, White Man's Bird, and people forget that poem was written by Rudolf Kipling, a British imperialist, to America, encouraging the Americans to do in the Philippines what the Brit- what Britain had done in India and Asia. And the Americans at the time saw this as a, an inspiring lesson. And I think Americans are in denial about their imperial roots. And to understand American imperialism, you're best off first understanding British imperialism as the model. Reading your book, I've been going over and over in my head the question of whether the British Empire is over. Because I think the average punter on the street in Australia would say it is, although we famously rejected at a national referendum the opportunity to become a republic several decades ago. I mean, attitudes towards colonialism... I think culturally you'd have to say, and generally, are negative these days. Britain also isn't actively cultivating an empire anymore. As you said, after uh, Brexit, this is perhaps what Britain needs to do. But in in, in empire world, and, and all your books really, you maintain that the continuous there is a continuing legacy left of Brit- the British Empire. So is it over, is my question. I don't think so. I mean, there's all sorts of interesting legacies. I mean, if you go to Parliament Square in London, you'll find the Supreme Court there. And part of the Supreme Court is the Judicial Judicial Committee of the Privy Council, which is the final court of appeal still for 26 countries, including Mauritius. So you've got countries like Kashmir and or areas of the world like Kashmir and Iraq and Sudan and Myanmar, where their instability it's pretty much created by the British, and not least in Palestine, you know, a part of the world where I mean, we, we created a huge amount of problems. But basically, we, in the early stages of the Palestine mandate, the British follow, promised that part of the world both to the Arabs and to the Zionists. And God, we're still living with the legacies of that now. So I would say empire very much isn't over. And, you know, people argue about if it even began and when it began and when it ended. It's quite common to say the British Empire ended in 1997 when Britain handed back Hong Kong to the Chinese. But there's so many legacies. But even our daily lives, you know, the existence of entire cities like Calcutta and Nairobi and countries like Nigeria and Pakistan, patterns of tax avoidance still pretty much follow the imperial pattern. 
entire corporations like BP and HSBC and Shell and PO originated in empire and charities that still operate with colonial mindset, like Save the Children. And uh, I think the legacies of empire, psychological, geopolitical, pretty much continue on a daily basis around the world. As you rightfully say, both good and bad. Fascinating to talk to you today. Satnam Sangira is my guest. His new book is Empire World, a good start if you want to understand some of these dualities he uh, speaks of. Thanks for your time today. Thanks, Andy. You've been listening to a podcast of The Drawing Room with me, Andy Park. Andy Park. 